uptown girl. She's been living in her uptown world. I bet she never had a backstreet guy. I bet her mama never told her why. I'm going to try for an uptown girl. She's been living in her white red world as long as anyone with hot blood can, and now she's looking for a downtown man. That's what I am. And when she knows what she wants from her time, and when she wakes up and makes up her mind, she'll see I'm not so tough just because I'm in love with an uptown girl. And you'll know I've seen her in her uptown world. She's getting tired of her high-class toys. And all her presents from her uptown boys, she's got a choice. She's got a choice. As I said last week, as we embarked upon Ruth, many uh, Christians approach this 3,000-year-old love story with certain misconceptions. And most of these stem from the fact that we're tempted to apply this, this, this love story, this love song to ourselves uh, without any refinement at all, employing a kind of character study hermeneutic, which, which transfers all of the uh, 11th century BC experiences of a Moabite woman named Ruth and an Israelite man named Boaz onto our lives wholesale, such that this ancient book essentially becomes a book which tells me who and how to date, which leads some Christians to feelings of, of missing out on God's specific plan if the seemingly promised Mr. Boaz or Miss Ruth does not come along and they are overlooked. But far worse leads to all Christians missing God's salvation plan as their promised redeemer is overlooked here. Well, friends, let me say it again. The book of Ruth, like every other book in the Old Testament, seeks to illustrate God's central plan for his people, and so the love story between Christ and his church. The book of Ruth is not designed to drive us inward, to find ourselves or our spouses in our story. The book of Ruth is designed to drive us outwards, upwards, to find the king and the savior in the story. And yet there's a, there a second, perhaps more subtle way that Christians can botch the book of Ruth. And that is to fail to properly grasp the historical context of this love story, and so to read it with modern eyes, which most commonly happens when we reach chapter 2. And this first famous meeting between uh, Ruth and Boaz. Well, seemingly many Christians picture these events that we've just read this morning like some kind of cheesy 1980s Billy Joel pop music video with Ruth pictured in our mind as the, as the uptown girl, a girl from Moab who has just danced onto the screen and caused a great stir in southern Bethlehem at end of chapter one, a girl from uptown, up north from the, from the Jordan region, and an uptown girl who is strikingly kind, verse 11, indeed an uptown girl who is praised in chapter 3, verse 10, for, for not running after the rich young men. Accordingly, here in chapter 2, many often picture Boaz as the backstreet guy, kind of old farmer from the south, a, a loved-up, old-fashioned Casanova who doesn't have much chance with this, this kind young lady. But nevertheless, in verse 5, leans over to his colleagues when he first sees her and sings Billy Joel's style, I'm going to try for an uptown girl. Maybe she's looking for a downtown man. That's what I am. 
Perhaps she's getting tired of all her high-class toys and her presents from her uptown boys. She has a choice. But if we read chapter 2 in that modern romantic way, well, we miss this whole metaphor and indeed the whole book of Ruth. For in 11th century BC reality, Boaz is no downtown man, no needy bachelor, but rather a well-connected and well-respected rich businessman. Verse 1, he is a worthy man. We're told that from the outset. A good boss who I think in verse 5 simply looks over and wonders why a foreigner is now working in his fields. And moreover, nothing could be further from the truth about Ruth. For Ruth is not necessarily a, a pretty uptown girl. In fact, we have absolutely no idea what Ruth looks like. And the only way she is depicted throughout is as a Moabite. Did you notice that? A sworn enemy of God's people. One who belonged to a people who actually killed God's people. Indeed, three times in this chapter alone, she is defined solely by her affiliation to this evil enemy nation. When the original reader read Ruth the Moabite, I am therefore to read Ruth the German from the 1940s. And perhaps for you, Ruth the Brit from the 1770s. For she has no desirable uptown girl qualities. She is a foe in the fields. One who needs constant protection, as you can see throughout this whole chapter. Moreover, and contrary to the Billy Joel hit, Ruth has no high-class toys. She's left all her possessions behind last week, and she has no uptown boys chasing her around. She was married to an Israelite man who is now dead, and she has no mama to tell her why. Again, she left behind her mother in chapter 1, and hence she has no privileged white bread background. In fact, she has no bread at all. Ruth is a starving refugee with no thing, no thing at all. And certainly no choice. Indeed, at the start of this chapter, we see that she has no choice but to go out into the fields and to glean, which again may evoke in, in very romantic minds, uh, sunlight pearled on, on barley fields and, and summer breezes and, and, and peasant communities laughing together and evening barn dances and episodes of Little House on the Prairie. But in reality, gleaning was like going through the trash scrabbling around on the floor in the dirt and looking for, for anything edible that was accidentally dropped by a tough farm worker with a machete. This is not the stuff of cheesy 80s music videos. This is the stuff of news reports which carry warnings may contain images which some viewers might find distressing. Accordingly, what is Ruth searching for? Verse 2. She's not searching for an uptown boy. She's not searching for a downtown man. She's not actually searching for food ultimately. Ruth is searching for kindness. Point one this morning. Kindness, the center of our search. Kindness, the center of our search. Look down with me to verse two. Ruth the Moabite said, let me go to the field and glean amongst the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Or as the Berkeley Bible translation renders, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone who will be kind to me? Although Boaz is introduced 
to us, the reader in verse 1, Ruth knows nothing of Boaz yet. And so she simply goes out in search of, of someone who might be kind to her. A landowner who perhaps won't tell an immigrant to clear off. A harvester who won't threaten a Moabite with a machete. Friends, most of us here, I'm guessing, have not been in a situation like Ruth's. But, but let me ask you a question. What are you searching for? What are you searching for? As you go out into the fields each day, as you say goodbye to those you live with after breakfast, as Ruth says goodbye to Naomi here in verse 2, what lies at the very center of your life search? What do you go down to the fields believing that, that you most need? Perhaps you're a total pragmatist. One who sets off each day a little bit like a caveman on the search for essential food and water and shelter. Or perhaps having believed that you've always, you will always have such needs met. Your ultimate search surrounds safety. Safety in, in more money or the mortgage being paid off or, or medical insurance. Or perhaps you ultimately search for something else, something seemingly even more essential to you. The beautiful spouse, the bigger family. The blossoming friendship circle. Maybe the center of your search is just fulfilling your potential. Being the best you you can be. The above average student. The fittest 40 year old. The entrepreneur with a successful new business. Friends, none of these things are bad. But let me tell you what should lie at the very center of the creature's search in the creator's world. Let me tell you what the Bible says our most fundamental need is, whether we are from Moab or, or Mozambique or the United Kingdom or the United States. The center of the human search, when we are at our most rational, is the search for undeserved kindness. And not chiefly a kindness from our fellow harvesters, but a kindness from the one who owns the fields of blessing. But the Bible tells us that every single person should, should first of all see themselves in God's world like Ruth first sees herself here in God's fields. One who comes into God's place, into God's world, particularly into, into his church this morning in deep humility and a knowledge of their position. Not thinking of themselves as some uptown girl. One who searches for, for, for much in life. One who searches and deserves more toys, more boys. One who looks for God and his people to clap and swoon when they first see them at church, amazed that such a beautiful person has chosen to work in their fields. No. Each of us, my, myself very much included, should recognize that spiritually we are born poor Moabites like Ruth. Innate enemies of God. Foreigners in his fields of goodness, spiritual refugees, hungry for holiness, and yet malnourished in morality. Beggars, unworthy to enter his barns of blessing. As a result, those who have become Christians are those who woke up one day like Ruth. And they looked at the mirror at some point in their lives before work, and they saw themselves as they were with a true honesty. And for once, they did not search for a religious disguise, such that they could pretend to be a worthy person, one who entered the fields, but rather saw that their greatest search in life then and always needed to be the undeserved kindness of God. Verse 2, 
being a foreigner in the promised land, I shall hope to find favor in the sight of one who is kind. And so what happens next in our story? What happens next? Well, well Ruth does find favor and finds favor in the, in the sight of Boaz. And yet before that, the kind farmer sets his eyes upon Ruth in verse 5. If we look very carefully at verses 3 and 4, we know that someone else has been kindly working and way before that critical moment. At verse 3, look down with me again. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. A second point this morning. Kindness, the center of God's sovereignty. Kindness, the center of God's sovereignty. Well, the most famous uh, tale of love at first sight is probably William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And yet before that, they're well known looking across the dance floor scene in, in Act 1 that the play of Romeo and Juliet begins with a prologue. As you're taking your seats, normally one actor will come out and will say the following words. Two households, both alike in dignity. In fair Verona, where we lay our scene from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. At the start, the end is given away. Two ill-fated foes, Romeo and Juliet, will fall helplessly in love. But how will all this happen? Well, like, great, like many great romantics, Shakespeare essentially says, it's written in the stars. A pair of star-crossed lovers will take their life. And in a sense, with, with modern eyes on this text, it'd be easy, very easy in verse 3 to, to read that in a similar manner. Ruth went out, and as the shining stars would have it, she found Boaz's field. Ruth went out, and being a Sagittarius on a full moon, she wandered into the arms of a Pisces. But again, that cheesy pop music video reading of the text, a reading which misses the historical setting, will not do. For the God-fearing historian who, who pens this account clearly wants to remind his God-fearing audience at this juncture that, that God is still directing this play. Verse 3, uh, Ruth just happened, i.e. in God's sovereignty, he points out, happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. At verse 4, and behold, behold, in God's sovereignty, behold, Boaz happened to come up to Bethlehem that day, and all these happenings are happening in God's sovereignty. Indeed, we, the reader, are to remember that God has not just stepped out on the stage of Ruth's life in chapter 2, verse 3. No, God has been orchestrating all these events in Ruth's life to bring her to this very place. When she was born, Ruth was, was literally miles and miles from the promised land. Years before this day, Ruth was, was a little child born in a wicked land where they sacrificed children to made-up gods. And yet she grew up and she survived violence and famine. And Ruth happens to make it to her teenage years. Uh, and then at the start of this book, chapter 1, verse 1, that there happens to be a, a famine in Israel. And then there happens to be an Israeli family who happened to distrust God and happened to move to Moab. And, and this Israeli family happens to move into Ruth's neighborhood. And this family happens to have a boy her age. And this boy happens to fall in love with Ruth. 
And this boy, now Ruth's husband, happens to die. And then his brother happens to die. And his father too. And then Ruth's mother-in-law happens to hear of bread back in the land of Israel. And Ruth happens to make it safely all the way to Bethlehem. And in all the many thousands of acres of farmland, she just so happens to stand now in Boaz's field of barley. Yes, there's a great kindness shown in the man Boaz. We shall come to that in a moment. But we must not miss the kindness of Boaz's God. The one who Boaz praises for always being with them, verse 4. The one who Boaz's workers praises for blessing them always, verse 4. And hence we must not miss that this story is not about a pair of, of star-crossed lovers who take their life, but rather a story about a pair of sovereignly schemed lovers who find life because God is kind. Did Ruth choose to come to Israel? Yes. Did Ruth choose to be kind to Naomi last week? Yes, yes, she did. Will Boaz choose to be kind to Ruth this week? Yes, he will. But before all those weeks passed, God was sovereignly at work and at work because he is kind to his people. For friends, the sovereignty of God is not some kind of impersonal force, but the great kindness of a Grandmaster chess player who is seeking the good of all who trust him, the final checkmate from all our suffering and sin. Friends, on one level, this story is not ours. The story of Ruth and Boaz offers the Christian no promise of a Romeo and Juliet love at first sight moment, but it does illustrate the incredible lengths that God has sovereignly worked in his kindness to bring you here this very day amid his people to offer you the bounty of his gospel yet again, that which you are so hungry for. And my Christian friend, the story of your conversion, the realization of your sinful beginnings, your, your turning from wicked Moab, your search for, for kindness to an outsider, your meandering paths towards your Savior may not be as winding or as dramatic as Ruth's are here, for perhaps you, you arrived in the fields of his blessing as a child. Perhaps you saw the goodness of God from your, your parents and cannot remember one day as a Moabite. But friends, your story is no less amazing when you look at it from the start of time. And hence God's sovereign kindness to you in bringing you to his fields of rescue this day. Ruth no doubt thought on the Moab-Israeli border that she chose that God would be her God. But in time, she would come to see that God had worked it all out in his unmerited kindness. And so, friends, how happy is the one? How happy is the one who spends much time at marveling at God's kind and sovereign choice of them? How happy is the one who looks back regularly, not to the disappointments of the past, to a cruel childhood endured perhaps, to a wrong relationship had, to a marriage missed out on, to a, a career prospect dashed, but how happy is the one who looks further back than that, who draws more deeply on the well of history to see God kindly at work from the very beginning before they were even born in bringing them to eternal life. 
Ephesians 2, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as those he chose in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. Kindness, the center of God's sovereignty. And so to return to our story, of all the fields of Bethlehem, of all of them, Ruth arrives in Boaz's field, and, and what is Boaz like, verse 8 onwards? Well, Boaz's kindness personified. And hence, point three this morning. Kindness, the center of Christ's service. Kindness, the center of Christ's service. In verse 6, a morning report is given to Boaz. Well, Boaz is evidently the top boss, one who, given his position, doesn't uh, need to be there early for the morning shift. He, he probably doesn't need to be really there at all. Perhaps he could have been off on vacation. Perhaps he could have just zoomed in to this morning meeting. But being the diligent boss that he is, he, he pulls up in the company car and he, and, he, and, he, and he jumps out and he asks his foreman personally. And the foreman shows him the Excel spreadsheets of the, of the morning yield. And then looking up from the data, uh, Ruth, uh, Boaz rather, catches Ruth working. And so the puzzled Boaz asks, not so much who's that pretty young girl, but rather who's the new intern? Who does she work for? Verse 6, whose young woman is this? Someone's servant accidentally strayed into our fields. Did, did I sign up a, a harvesting temp? I don't remember doing that. Now, of course, Ruth's gleaning here was not illegal. In fact, because God's, uh, God's compassion upon outsiders, gleaning was actually commanded in Israel. In Leviticus 19, we read, when you reap the, the harvest in your land, you shall not gather the gleanings after the harvest. Strip your vineyard bare, nor gather the fallen grapes. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God's compassion was to be seen in everyday life. God's compassion was to be seen even, even on the farm. And so... God's law saw to it that, that people like Ruth could have the scraps. For from Israel then to the church now, God's people are not to be greedy. God's people are not to overlook the poor. Uh, presumably, that is why the harvesters uh, allowed uh, Ruth past security that morning. But whatever had led to her being there right now, allowed to work, that the boss uh, faces a choice. What will Boaz do? He learns, verse 6, that Ruth is a Moabite. She's an enemy of Israel. And he learns that, that she is not, not a poor Israelite, nor technically a sojourner just passing through. Perhaps he could just turn her away on a, on a technicality. And moreover, Boaz learns that the Ruth has been there since early morning, stopping for only a short rest. And so perhaps he could now point her to, to another field on the basis that he had done his bit for the poor. But no. For this is the worthy man of verse 1. This is the righteous man of this book. This is the kind man who Ruth has been searching for. The man in the ancestry line of Jesus Christ. And so what are the very words he utters to Ruth? Well, look at the immeasurable kindness of verse 8. To a poor widowed immigrant who must have looked with great fear when the owner called her over. Verse 8. Listen, my daughter, 
Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close, literally cling to my young women, the harvesters in my field, and let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Friends, what a, what a stunning picture of the Lord Jesus Christ we see painted in Boaz. What wonderful words of kindness seen here may be applied to our, our, our fearful and thirsty souls when we see Boaz as the promised Christ. A man who, who not only does not send the beggar away, a man who not only permits them to stay and beg, a man who not only lets them walk with his people, but a man who promises boundless provision and abundant protection. And so, my friend, whoever you are this morning, however many years you have rejected this kind man and said, no, thank you, will your response not parallel Ruth this day in verse 10? Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? Since I am a foreigner. Verse 13. I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of yours. Ruth's words of response to Boaz's words are, are so apt, aren't they? And yet these kind words of Boaz, they're not merely words, are they? For the promised provision and protection in verses 8 to 13 are then served up to Ruth in reality in verses 14 to 17. Boaz is not just a man who promises a girl much, but then fails to carry out all that he said he would do. No. Ruth comes in for a lunch break in verse 14, and she does not sit by herself like a bullied immigrant child at middle school, but Ruth sits with the rest of God's people. And she sits with her Lord. And she enjoys bread and wine. And verse 14, she is satisfied completely. And then Ruth goes back out into the fields full in verse 15. And then Boaz stands watching on guard like the loyal sheepdog of the farm. Boaz ensures that no man raises his hand against her. Nor his voice against her either. In fact, in verse 15, his men are instructed to, to give her not the scraps, but the sheaves. Indeed, verse 16, they are to even pull up the best stalks on purpose and to hand them to Ruth as if she were the very owner herself. Ruth started the day with nothing, snatching what accidentally fell from the hands of her enemies. Ruth ends the day with everything being served up what was intentionally given from the hands of friends. And so, she returns to Naomi, verse 17, with an ephah of barley, a massive seven gallons of grain. And as Naomi notes, the kindness of Boaz is outrageous. His kind service of protection is outrageous. The kind service of his provision is outrageous. And again, friends, it is meant to be. It is meant to be. For again, these amazing pictures in the Old Testament are ultimately for us, for us today, his people, 
for they foreshadow Christ's service of you and me. The service of God's ultimate worthy man to a people who have taken refuge under the wings of God, verse 12. Boaz's kind protection from harsh farmhands is fulfilled in Christ's protection of us from the evil on this day. And it is protection from, from all our, our, our sin and guilt. And it is protection from temptation in the world. And Boaz's kind provision in the mountains of Bali is finally fulfilled in Christ's provision of his righteousness and holiness that allows us to stand before God that we may feast with his people. And it's fulfilled in the provision of his Holy Spirit, the first fruits of what is to come. But friends... I think most important for us to hear, see here this morning, behind all those possible New Testament fulfillments of protection and provision, is what is at the center of such service. For the attribute at the center of Boaz's service, as we are told time and time and time again in this chapter, is kindness. Verse 20, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Friends, the testimony, the testimony of the whole of Scripture, from Old Testament shadow to New Testament substance, is a Savior whose most natural impulse is to kindly move towards a people who have no virtue of their own, who are hungry for righteousness, who need protection from the accusations of the evil one. And so again, whoever you are this morning, will you not go to him? For my friends, he is kind beyond words to those who are willing to glean in fields with humility. If you come to church this morning, searching for that which you most need, will you not go to him this day? For his kindness will satisfy you. Satisfy you more than all the bread that Ruth brings home. And if you are already happily working in his fields, if you are already one who is sitting around his table of bread and wine regularly, having accepted his kind blessing of life already, will you not praise him again this day for the center of his service to you? His incredible kindness. And moreover, fellow Edgefield church members, if you are someone who have experienced his kindness and have experienced that, that, that kindness for yourself, will you not kindly serve others who come into his fields too? Having been served by the kind Lord Jesus, will you not become a kind servant like the Lord Jesus? Having taken refuge under his wings because of his kindness and his, and his kindness alone, Will you not take others under your wings too? Final point this morning, just as, with, as we close. Kindness, at the center of Christian service. Kindness, the center of Christian service. At this last week, my son Benjamin embarked on a school project on birds. As a result, it's been a, a fairly significant weekend of bird research in the, in the Worsley home. Uh, bird encyclopedias were, were read yesterday and bird TV 
shows were, were watched avidly. And, and one of the striking features that I noted was the fascinating ways in which birds pass on their central characteristics to their chicks, to the ones who are cared for in the nest. For the chick who ends up becoming a parent themselves, copies the, 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 the actions of the adult who cared for them, which is particularly striking when it comes to one bird. For the African jacana is a bird who teaches its chicks a, a couple of remarkable uh, things in its dangerous uh, African swamp surroundings. For firstly, the jacana teaches its chicks to run. They have these huge legs, and, and they teach them to run so quickly across the Saharan lily pads that they look like they're walking on water. And hence, the African jacana is also known as the Jesus bird. And yet there are more Christ-like things that this Jesus bird teaches its chicks. For when a jacana chick hatches, it is unable to fly. Indeed, it cannot fly for over 40 days. And as a result, the Jesus bird teaches its chicks to kindly provide. That the parent is marked by but an incessant flying back and forth for food, kindly providing for its chicks who cannot gather for themselves. And not only that, but due to the chick's lack of flight, when a predator comes, most famously, the African jacana will return and will literally gather its chicks into itself, into its wings for refuge, such you cannot even see them. And such that the, the parent jacana hilariously looks like a spider with eight legs as it scrambles to safety, all its chicks inside. As ornithologists note, it is exhausting for the parent. But it is this central characteristic of kindness, this kind provision, this kind protection passed down generation on generation on generation that ensures that the African jacana survives and that other people get to see the Jesus bird. Friends, can you see? The very central characteristic of true Christians, the DNA of Jesus birds, those who were given food in abundance, those who have found refuge in their parents, are Christians who are marked by a similar service, centered in kindness to fledgling believers. My friends, in, in so many respects, my, my chief prayer is, my chief prayer really is that you close this text this morning marveling at Christ, marveling at Boaz's kindness to Ruth, and so marveling at Jesus' kindness to you. However, it is striking, is it not, that though Boaz is at the very center of this kindness, that their kindness is, is often enacted by his workers. For the workers who have come to find food in his field are the very ones who come to welcome in the deprived Ruth before her Savior even arrives on the scene to save her. And are the ones who obey their commander's voice, allowing the young foreigner to glean alongside them, drawing up water from the well when they are thirsty, letting the filthy outsider sit with them at the table, pulling up the very toughest sheaves that the one who came empty may leave full. Because the center of Christ's service is an outrageous kindness. We who serve in his field should be marked by such kindness too. And so my friends, as well as marveling at Christ, we must ask ourselves as we close, is, is this us? 
is this us? Is this, is what, is this what is at the center of, of our words? Is this what is at the center of, of our work and our lives? Are we those who delight when the young laborer finds fruit and, and we don't? Are we those who are willing to keep drawing up the, the refreshing water of his word to those who are thirsty? Those who welcome the filthy outsider to the Lord's table. Those who are willing to do the hard work of ministry such that they are weak may feed on the blessings of Christ. Friends, what rest our tired souls have found in the kindness of God. What bounty of provision and protection we find in the, in the kind Lord Jesus Christ. What a redeemer we have stumbled across in the kind sovereignty of God. Let us pray that we may be kind like him. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your sovereignty you have provided us with what we most need, what we have secretly searched for all our days. Father, we praise you how you have led us into your fields of blessing in Christ. And Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord. Father, we thank you and praise you so much for his incredible kindness. We thank you that in his kindness, he, he gave us his own righteousness when we were poor, his protection when we were accused by the evil one. Father, we thank you for how he kindly brings us into your house of bread and wine, into your fields to labor. And so please help us to live like your laborers. Help us to be like the true Boaz, the Lord Jesus himself. Help us to be outrageously kind and kind for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.